Hopefully over the next five weeks our, our progress will be uh, that today we want to look at the glory of God and attempt in a small way to understand what that actually is. Um, and I have to say it's impossible for us to actually explain what that actually is, but we maybe can catch a glimpse of that. And then to realise in, in study two that the only way that we can have any sort of access to the glory of God is through our union with Christ. In weeks three and four, we want to look at and how does the Holy Spirit work uh, his, his way into helping us to relate to this God of all glory. And lastly, in week five, what does that mean for us as, as, we, as we move around in our families, in our workplaces, in the people that we meet and so on? How does, what, what effect does all this have? So the first thing is, um, let's pray. That's the first thing. Our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the origin of all good things, the one who has created us for your purposes, the one who redeems us, uh, the one who sustains us. So, Father, as we study and look at your word this morning, we pray that you will make yourself known to us. Uh, You'll make yourself known to us in all of your glory and greatness and righteousness, that we may willingly uh, be obedient to you and trust you in all things. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to say is, is that every time characters in the Bible encounter God, what is their response? They normally fall over. <laughs> it's fear. And that's, that's, not, um, that's not an encouraging word in one sense, is it? But the, the reason that characters in the Bible, when they, when they come anywhere near to God, they experience this incredible fear because God is holiness and glory and righteousness far beyond anything that we can comprehend. And that holiness and that glory and that righteousness um, confronts the very depths of our soul because we're not. And if you think about Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, um, Adam and Eve are disobedient and they choose to go their own way. And what was their response when they heard God coming in the garden? They hid from him. They hid from him because they were afraid of his glory and his righteousness. And there are so many places, you know, we could look in Mark, uh, Mark 4, uh, where uh, Jesus is in the, in the boat uh, the, and he calms the storm. And you would think that the disciples would say, wow, Jesus, that was a good trick. But that's not what happens. No, Mark tells us that they were filled with fear. Have a check in, in Mark chapter 4. And when Jesus calms the storm, they didn't say, woo, that was good, but they were filled with fear because they realised they were in the presence of a holy and righteous God. 
the occasion in uh, Luke where um, Jesus asks the fishermen to let down their nets. They hadn't caught fish for a long time and to let down their nets to collect fish. And the, the nets were filled to abundance with this fish. And you would, you would think that, again, the disciples would say, wow, that's pretty good. You've, you've set us up for days now. No, instead, what do they say? I am a sinner. What a, what a fundamentally different response. Because they realise, again, that they're in the presence of a holy God. And then when we, when we sing holy, 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 that comes out of Isaiah 6, and the Lord appears to Isaiah. Isaiah's been praying in the temple for so long. Uh, and you think uh, that, that when God shows a little bit of his presence to Isaiah, Isaiah might say, whoa, I've been praying for this for a long time. It's really good that you've begin, begun to show up. No, what happens? Isaiah says, woe is me. Woe is me. See, we don't easily understand the holiness of God. It is so far beyond us. Uh, he is so far beyond us in terms of righteousness and holiness that the only response we can have when we glimpse that is actual fear. But fortunately, we're not left there, right? Now, what we're going to do this morning is, is begin with a little bit of an exercise. On the front page of your notes um, are 10 uh, questions and the second column are some small readings that relate to those questions. And what I want us to do is I want us to work through uh, those questions, but we're not all going to do them all, otherwise boom, the hour's gone, right? So I want you in... I think we can do this in pairs. So, and in the third column, I want you to summarise what's being said in those verses in less than six words. This is different, isn't it? Okay, let's halt there. And who came up with question number one? Our lovely people at the front. And your summary in less than six words? How, why does God bring salvation to us? For his name, it's for his name's sake, to his honour and glory. Right. So why does God bring salvation to us? Not primarily for us, but for his name's sake, for his honour and for his glory. Who looked at number two? Same sort of question. Why does God choose to bring us to salvation? Holy, blameless, sonship, Holy Spirit. Right. So it's about holiness um, and bringing us into into his family. Why does God restrain his anger from us? Number three. For his praise and glory. His desire not to cut us off. Yeah, for his praise and glory. You just exceeded that six words there, I saw that. Question four. Why does God not give up on us? For his great namesake. We're getting the pattern, right? And if we, if we followed through all of these ten questions, what would we find? Why do, what, what motivates God? What are his purposes? 
The answer to that question is everything he does is for the sake of his own name, for his own glory. That's the first thing. And we begin to think, well, hang on. So, Brian, you've told us so far that the glory of God causes us to be afraid. That's not, that's not very good for us, right? And now you're telling us that everything God does is not for us, but for his namesake, right? Where do I appear in this story, you know? But what I want to say is that because that is God's motivation, that is an incredible blessing for us. And what I want to do in the next 15, 20 minutes or so is show how that is so. So God does everything for his own glory and for the sake of his own name. Let's read our passage, uh, Isaiah 43, on the second page of your notes. Isaiah 43 and the first seven verses. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honoured, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So what's God saying here? He's saying to don't fear. Do not fear. You can count on me. You can trust me. You can rely upon me. He talks about, I am the Lord your God who loves you. And is love the Father's motive? Uh, Verse 4 it appears to be, because you are precious in my eyes and honoured and I love you. Is love the Father's motive? Well, God is love, 1 John tells us, chapter 4. And we must conclude that no matter how much we examine the motives of God, we will never arrive at an answer that is not love. Do you follow? He will always, his vehicle, if you like, is love. But then we ask the question from our passage, why was Israel even created? Why did God bring into existence a people whom he could regard as precious and honoured and loved. Because to be honest, the Israelite nation were not very nice people. They weren't, they didn't deserve the love of God. So why did God bring them to be his special people? Question. Did I love my children before they came into being? Interesting question, isn't it? Um, In one sense, I did. The the anticipation of having children, you would love them because they're yours, right? But I couldn't fully love them 
until they actually came into being, right? In order to be fully and completely loved, they had to exist. In order for God's people to be completely loved, they had to exist. So, what was God's motive before there was even a people to love? Well, it's it's verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what? For my glory. I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And here's the constant battle, you see, um, that we human beings are in a constant battle, the desire to make ourselves the centre of the universe versus the glory of God. And ever since Adam and Eve chose to eat uh, from that forbidden fruit in Genesis 3, uh, in order to be like God, independent of him and wise in their own right, the human race has been enslaved to a rebellious heart that hates to rely upon God and wants to rely on itself. That's us, right? However much we try and disguise that, that's us. And the whole temptation in Genesis 3 is, you can be like God. You don't need to be dependent upon him. And then we move on to Genesis 11. And what happens in Genesis 11? Um, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11.4, says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us do what? Let us make a name for ourselves. See, we were created, according to our passage in verse 7, we were created to rely upon God and give him glory, to recognise his glory. Instead, we choose to rely on ourselves and seek our own glory, to try and make a name for ourselves. And human beings were created from the beginning in God's image and likeness that we might display God's glory. Habakkuk says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of what? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And this is for all God's people. And how does that affect our living? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, says Paul in 1 Corinthians, do all to the glory of God. Let your light shine, it says in Matthew, so among men, so that they may see your good deeds and do what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. So our big question becomes, what is this? What is this glory of God that is so important uh, throughout the scriptures? I would argue this, that God's glory is the perfection and the perfect harmony of all his attributes. We, we tend to try to separate the attributes of God. God is love, God is holy, God is righteous, God is compassionate. But God is not separable into those things, right? He is, he is a complete totality of all of those things. And God's glory is the perfect harmony of all the attributes of himself. 
He is perfect in every way. He is perfect goodness, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect love, perfect in every way. He is those things. He's not an example of those things. He is those things. He is holiness. No God, no holiness. He is truth. No God, no truth. He is righteousness. No God, there'd be no righteousness. He is grace. No God, there'd be no grace. You see, he's, he's, he is those things. Not a representation of those things, but he is those things. So when God says he created us for his glory, it cannot mean that he created us so that we would make him more glorious. We cannot make him more glorious. He is the ultimate in gloriousness, right? We can't improve on that. It's an impossible thing to do. His beauty and perfection uh, cannot be increased by us. We are the created ones. We can't add anything to the glory of God. It's a staggering but essential thought that God has always existed that he never came into being and that everything which exists, which is not God, is from the fullness of God and nothing can ever be added to him which did not come from him. Do you follow me? That was a complex sentence, I know. And that's what it means to be God. That's, that's what the glory of God is and that should humble us and bring us joy. And he created us to display his glory through us. And we're going to talk about that over the next four weeks. That his glory might be known and praised. And you know, if if we were to make it really, really simple, how do we best display, how do we best portray, how do we best reflect the glory of God, it's in two simple words, trust and obey. That's it. If we fully trusted and obeyed God, we would be saying we are subject to the one who is most holy, most righteous, most glorious. And that's, that's the purpose of our life. Sometimes we put things in the way of that. You know, creation is not God's glory. If you looked at Psalm 91, uh, it says creation declares and proclaims his glory. In other words, it's not his glory, it's, it's, it's an expression of his glorious creativity. And, and creation, Psalm 19 tells us, is created by him and therefore is obedient to him. The fact that it rains today is God's determination. Don't, it's not the client, climate scientists who determine whether it rains or not today. It's God who determines whether it rains or not today. All creation is, is created by him and therefore is obedient to him. Creation trusts him and obeys him. And the purpose of creation is to point us to the glory of the one who brings meaning and identity and purpose and peace and rest to our hearts. And the God of glory acts, our passage tells us, acts out of love, holiness, goodness, mercy, grace, faithfulness, all of those things. 
God acts according to who he is. He loves because he's loving. He acts rightly because he's righteous. As he acts, he displays himself, and as he displays himself, he glorifies himself. And God is perfection. He is perfect and complete holiness, perfect and complete righteousness, perfect and complete love. That's why the triune God, understanding the Trinity, is so important. Because the triune God has always existed. God in three persons, loving, serving one another. And and we have the image of God. We bear the image of God. In other words, the DNA of the triune God who spend eternity loving and serving one another, that DNA is in us. That's what we're designed to be. And that truth, that truth that God is love and the persons of the Trinity love in fullness is the most securing thing for us. See, this is the point, that that although the glory of God brings us to be fearful because it, it challenges our lack of gloriousness, the perfection in God as our parent brings us incredible security. When I was going to marry my wife just over 50 years ago, my father-in-law gave me some advice. At the time, I didn't understand it. He said, Brian, the best thing you can do for your future family is to love your wife. And that puzzled me for a long time. The best thing you can do for your future family is to love your wife. But I gradually grew to understand that, that the way that I secure my children is to love my wife because they look at the relationship between their dad and their mum and they see this relationship of love and they're secured by it. Can you see? That's the way that the relationship in, in the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity who love one another, brings us security. And what I say to, to young people, um, that, you know, when, when one of the parents comes home from work, be it mum or dad, don't go and hug and kiss your kids first. Go to your spouse first and hug and love them. And your children will look at that and say, wow, mum and dad love one another. That secures us. So can you see how the the gloriousness of God in love and righteousness and holiness secures us? Because here is God, the perfect parent, uh, in triune form, loving and serving one another. Does that make sense? Good. It's very difficult for people who don't understand that, that, that glory and righteousness and holiness of God to understand that. When I first became a Christian, I remember writing to my mother. And my mother grew up in the UK where everybody was socially a Christian, right? And I told my mother that, that I'd, that, that Christ had redeemed me, had found me, had brought me into the kingdom, and now I was in love with Jesus. She was devastated. 
because she saw love as a quantity. In other words, she said, if you're now loving Jesus, there is less love for me. And I said, no, mum, that's not right. Um, There there is more. (laughs) There is more. I am secured by the love of Christ, which enables me to reflect that in greater ways to other people. But you see, if we don't understand that, we will see love quantitatively. Um, And I don't think my mother ever came to understand the truth of that. Our desire to seek our own glory is inherently idolatrous and selfish, actually. Um, And that's the basis of sin, exchanging, uh, exchanging the idea of seeing God as the most glorious and holy and righteous or trying to elevate ourselves. That's, the, that's, that's sin. Augustine talks about, you know, sin is either loving the wrong thing or loving the right things in the wrong order. It's an interesting thought to think about. Augustine said that's, that's what sin is. It's loving the wrong things or loving the right things in the wrong order. Uh, in other words, if I, uh, it's okay to love my family, it's okay to love my work, but the order of that love should be I love my family, I love my work. If I reverse that order, I've now got a problem. Do you see? There's nothing wrong with loving work and loving family, but if I, if I disrupt that order, I have a problem. And so the essence of sin is that we worship ourselves, we want ourselves to be glorious rather than God. And Romans 1 talks about this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged what? The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that exchange that robs God of his glory is at the very heart of sin. We want the glory that is God's alone. And the Bible tells us from our little exercise this morning that God does all things for the sake of his own glory. His glory is his perfect goodness. Herman Bavink, who's an up-and-coming, who's being revived as a theologian, a Dutch theologian, uh, he's becoming quite popular now, Um, said this, God can rest in nothing other than himself and cannot be satisfied with anything less than himself. He has no alternative but to seek his own honour. There is nothing beyond God, do you see? There is nothing more perfect than God. There is nothing more righteous than God. There is nothing more glorious than God. There is nothing beyond him. He is it. And we can see this in, in uh, that little passage from Hebrews 6. Um, he, he cannot look beyond himself for anything greater than himself. So, so the writer of Hebrews says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. You know, traditionally in, in, in culture, uh, we take an oath 
uh, by swearing on the Bible, by swearing under God that what we're about to say is true. And it's, and it's interesting that that is becoming less and less a requirement in our courts of law. And so when God makes a promise, uh, he cannot invoke any greater name than his own. In other words, every promise of God is 100% reliable. Can you see? Because he is glory and righteousness and truth and all of those things, every promise that God ever makes is 100% reliable. Can you see how that secures us? Can you see how important that is for us? And, and how faulty our promises are. And it's interesting because we, we try to look at God through our, our human lens. We think anybody who glorifies themselves, we wouldn't like them, right? It's like they're immodest. But you see, when a human person glorifies themselves, their self-importance and their overbearing actions cause harm to other people. They don't bring blessing and joy to us. But when God shows his glory, when God glorifies himself, um, it's his sharing his joy with us, his creatures, and the wholeness of creation. And without the knowledge of God's glory, we will be robbed of true joy, righteousness and, and, and holiness and love. and They'd all be myths. And so there's this one being, this one God who exists in the universe, who is ultimate in glory, ultimate in greatness, ultimate in beauty, ultimate in perfection, And he is all of those things in everything he is and everything he does. Everything comes from him, everything that is continues to exist through him and everything is made for him. If we read the book of Romans, it's full of the glory of God. And if we read the book of Romans, there's, there's this incredible... 11 chapters that talk about the glory and the wonder and the uh, supremacy of God. Romans is such a brilliant summary of the truth about God, the truth about humanity, um, how we are redeemed people. And so for 11 chapters, Paul lays out this incredible statement about the nature of humanity, the nature of God, the sinfulness of man, the need for God to be the Redeemer, and so on. Jesus, the glorious Redeemer. And and there's these 11 chapters. And then there's this part at the end of chapter 11 where Paul stops and he considers all that he's written about the glory of God And he says this in verse 33 of chapter 11. He says, oh, 
The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I don't think Paul's ever been more excited than that, that particular moment when he writes that statement. Because what he does, he says, I've just written down all this truth about the glorious God. If that doesn't make us excited, if that doesn't bring joy to our lives and our hearts and our beings, oh, it is fabulous. And, and we get this picture of Paul being you know, quite a miserable, dour sort of person. I don't think so. He is so excited by this truth about the glory of God. And so for the first 11 chapters, he feeds our minds with what the glory of God is. And then he allows that truth to filter down to his heart and he breaks out into this rejoicing about how wonderful this is. And then... And only then does he move on to chapter 12 and he says, I appeal to you therefore, because of this fabulous truth, I appeal therefore to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be conformed by the glory of God. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, And then he goes on in the next few chapters to say, as a consequence of this fabulous truth, this is how we are to live. You see, we can never look at Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 without first looking at Romans 1 to 11. Otherwise, it is simply, this is how you're meant to behave. And it becomes behavioural, it becomes legalistic. But Paul has said no. Read those first 11 chapters, see how glorious God is. Let it, let it invade your heart. Um, you know, cry out with joy and then this is how you should live. And Paul's letters are all like that. Ephesians is exactly the same. He, he sets that out in the same sort of way. And it's, it's just stunning, isn't it? All true life, identity, meaning, purpose, contentment, hope is to be found in God. This is why it's good for us, that that he is totally trustworthy. He is perfection itself. He secures us because he he is glorious and loving. He's gracious and redemptive. It is just such wonderful stuff. Um, So all true identity and meaning and purpose and contentment and hope is found in him. And to live in the light of God's glory is actually to recapture our humanity because this is how every human being was designed to live. Let's read together. I've, I've uh, written a little passage from First Chronicles. Um, 
the, the words were expressed by David. Um, it says this. David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. Now join me as we say these words because they're as true for us as they were for David. Are you ready? Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honour come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Amen. So next time we, we will talk about how we cannot add to God's glory, but we can live in it uh, and we can be an expression of it and we can display it and we can proclaim it, but only through the indwelling Christ, only through our union with Christ. Who is the only one who knows how to worship the Father? The Son. Uh, and if we know that we are united with Christ, it is Christ who worships God the Father through us because he's in us and we are in him. So I'm excited about that. Um, are there any questions or comments or, um, you know, you could get excited if you want. Uh, what do you think? Isn't the glory of God just wonderful? And we can only, we, we, we did that much, right? Makes you want to read the whole Bible. Yes! <laughs> yeah. And I realised the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole word of God is full of his glory. Uh, it's just, because warring within us is this desire to be self-sufficient. Is the, you know, it's, it's the inherent um, you know, uh, ne next week we'll talk about either we're in Adam or we're in Christ. And if we're in Adam, we're like Adam. We want to be self-centered. We want to be the ones in charge. Um, if we're in Christ, totally different story. We will subject ourselves to, to this glorious God that we know.